Hi everyone, welcome to GradCast, the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. I'm your host, Yusuf. And I'm your co-host, Liam Clifford. And today we are joined with Jesse Gilchrist, who's doing her, who has done her master's here at Western in political science and history. So welcome to our show, Jesse. Oh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Jesse, it's, I mean, it's good, good to see a fellow history alum uh, amongst our, our guests again. Do you just want to explain to Yusuf and the audience a bit about yourself, why you chose Western, and where you're kind of ending up now? Sure. Um, so I'm originally from rural Saskatchewan, so I'm kind of like making my journey east. Um, I actually started my undergrad in music. So I have a Bachelor of Music in Flute Performance, and about like halfway through my undergrad, I became really interested in history and international relations after taking some electives, so I decided to pursue a BA as well. And I guess my journey to grad school was a bit of a dilemma because I wasn't sure, do I do music? Do I do history? Where do I really go from here? So I had a little bit of trouble deciding which, but I ultimately chose history. And I really ended up at Western for my amazing supervisor, Francine McKenzie. Um, so uh, I guess I just finished my MA thesis defense a couple of weeks ago, and now I'll be starting another MA at the University of Toronto. Wow, what a journey. And I guess I was wondering, um, what were you interested in music? Um, I, I majored in performance, so I was interested in becoming like an orchestral member. So Jesse, so I'm someone who's gonna ask you some really silly questions. Uh, since I, I, my field is very different and this is all very new for me and I really enjoyed reading your abstract. Could you share with us um, in, in, in the, uh, what your research is about for, for someone like me to understand? Sure. So I'm looking at the history of the 1920s and 30s. And uh, I guess I'm trying to understand a history that we know just in a different way. So the way we usually talk about this period is this period of binaries we, uh, with the Second World War clearly in sight. So we look at like nationalism and internationalism and fascism and democracy and empire and state and collective security and total wow. war. So we're looking at these really binary concepts that we see clash and end up with the Holocaust, we ends up with total war. But I'm trying to understand what the continuities are between all of these binaries. So I'm kind of looking at this period of conflict and turning it on its head to look at cooperation. So I'm using the concept of cooperation between the British Empire and the Italian Empire to try to understand why cooperation really lasts as long as it does during the 1920s and 30s. So some of the big questions I'm asking are, why did they pursue cooperation? What imperial methods made cooperation possible or challenged it? And what does cooperation tell us about the global order during this time? Very interesting. I, I think that the Italian Empire is certainly one that is misunderstood. I think we so often hear about the British Empire um, way too much, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> but 
what what made you choose those two empires as as your as your main focus is is did they have similarities that you found worth comparing i think they certainly do but that was more of a question that i had when i was starting my research rather than something i knew to begin with mm. so i think i I wanted to look at Italian fascism because we so often look at German Nazism and uh, Italy is kind of seen as like this country that just kind of played along, but really it was complicit. It was a driver in the road to total war. And uh, it's surprising how many zones of competition and contact zones there are between the British and Italians. So the Mediterranean is really this zone of clashing imperial ambitions and looking first at Italy and then seeing where these conflicts or not really conflicts, but zones of cooperation emerge is kind of what led me to focus on those two empires specifically. Oh, um, so, so Jesse, tell us more about Italian fascism and what do you think were the central tenets of this kind of destructive ideology? Um, I mean, there are, there's a lot of literature that's been written on fascist ideology. And I guess there are two really main arguments about what fascist ideology is. So there is the orthodox school of fascist historiography that argues that, well, Mussolini was really just an opportunist. He was just really trying to find a, uh, find a balance between Nazi Germany and the British, and that he didn't really have a, an ultimate ideological goal for war. Um, but this argument has been largely uh, reconsidered by more recent historians who really see fascist ideology as being ideologically driven, which I mean should sound somewhat straightforward, but it's actually been quite a contentious thing about to what degree Mussolini was ideologically motivated. So a big uh, aspect of his ideology is empire building, uh, to break out of the Mediterranean prison that he calls to achieve the, uh, uh, I guess, the German equi or equivalent to Nazism would be Nazism's Lebensraum would be Spazio Vitale, which is living space in the Mediterranean. Um, social Darwinism, that there is a hierarchy of races and a hierarchy of states that the world somehow revolves around. Um, those are probably the, the very central elements that I, my research really engages with. Thank you. So, Jesse, we've been, we've been dealing with a lot of terms and one, one, one obvious character that comes up again and again is Benito Mussolini, who mm -hmm. is, is the current leader of Italy, correct? Yes. Yeah. So he obviously seems to get on very closely with, with Adolf Hitler, who needs no introduction. What, what sort of relationship do they foster? Is this a way for Italy to expand its image on the world stage? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And something that's a really interesting about this relationship, actually, is that, as you say, so many of us 
no Hitler with no introduction at all to history, really. But Benito Mussolini actually gained power 11 years before Hitler did in 1922. So I guess for Hitler, uh, the fascist regime provides a, a source of motivation um, or, or of inspiration, sorry, but there's also some learning that happens between these two leaders. So they begin to develop a closer relationship during the 1930s or later 1930s, as we all know, but to begin with, Mussolini is rather skeptical of what Hitler's goals are and whether these goals are going to parallel his or come into conflict with his. So to begin with, I, I think that cooperation with the British seems like a, more of the uh, a direction or a relationship to preserve because the British also have a high international standing with the League of Nations. And Germany is seen as this country that's rebuilding that no one really knows where it's going to end up. So uh, the, the shift towards Nazi Germany and the relationship that Mussolini and Hitler end up fostering is one of, I would argue, mutual interest because it by the late 1930s, it becomes clear that their goals will actually complement each other rather than conflict each other. And I think that certainly brings up a follow-up question because in reality we're dealing with two very different political ideologies if we talk about the United Kingdom and, and Italy at this time. Um, United Kingdom obviously priding itself on democracy and that's obviously in air quotes, if you will, because nothing in democracy ever comes out fully in practice, and fascist Italy. So I'm wondering how did these two countries reconcile their inherent ideological differences to cooperate with one another in the international realm? That's actually a question that my thesis really engages with. So one of the things that I was interested in questioning when I first started this project is to what degree can different ideologies coexist or even work together. And that's kind of what led me to focus on empire because when we look at how fascist empire and liberal empires work, there are actually a lot of similarities and continuities. So there isn't much, many differences really to reconcile when it comes to empire because they have a, quite similar approaches and use quite similar methods. The main differences that they have to reconcile are who is going to get what. I was wondering, what, Jesse, were there uh, rules that were bilateral, bilaterally agreed upon by both sides. Uh, uh, do you mean like during the the twenties and thirties? Yes, exactly. When when you said that they were when you mentioned that there were corporate developments, including bilateral agreements on rules, norms, etc., for the purpose of avoiding clashes, uh, limiting imperial imperial co um, competition, for example. Sure. So that yeah, that's one of the things that I'm really focusing on in my research is how does cooperation work? And uh, a number of my case studies show that cooperation works because it's mutually beneficial. And I think the Arabian Peninsula is a great example on how 
bilateral agreements create systems of cooperation that are mutually beneficial to both empires. So in the mid-1920s, there is a lot of potential for conflict in the Arabian Peninsula because Italy wants to get a foothold in Yemen and the British want to kind of safeguard their position at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula in the Aden Protectorate. So there's a great potential for these two empires to clash, but rather than letting competition go too far, they decide to create an agreement known as the Rome Understanding, which is where they sort of define how empire is going to work and limit areas of competition to prevent conflict from actually unfolding. So how this works is they both essentially create a spheres of influence arrangement where the British get the Aden Protectorate and what we now know as Saudi Arabia and the Italians get Yemen. And this, these are the limits of their political influence that they decide upon. And uh, looking at a map, it would seem that this agreement is rather skewed towards the British because they get so much more land than the Italians do. But it is seen as mutually beneficial because before this, the Italians do not have an internationally recognized position in Yemen. And through this agreement, the world's greatest empire is recognizing that they do have a position in Yemen. And they're also taking on a, a mutual responsibility to guarantee the security of these borders. So it's both the security of the indigenous populations. If they're going to go to war, they have a mutual responsibility to prevent that from happening, but they also have a mutual responsibility to prevent any other empire from trying to gain territory in this region. So that is, I think, probably one of the most straightforward examples of how bilateral agreements create systems of cooperation. Thank you very much. That's super fascinating. I, I, I particularly find that interesting too, because one of the questions I had come up with was how did this imperialism that Italy purported, what I might call fascist imperialism, differ from this so-called democratic imperialism that the British Empire purported? And I mean, it's, it's quite common knowledge, at least in history circles, that in the scramble for Africa, when European colonies were, were, were looking to colonize the continent, Italy was quite late in, in, in embarking on, 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 said, on said, I guess, adventure, as they termed it, for lack of a better term. How does, that, how does that late arrival to things shape their outlook in the 1920s and 30s? I think that late arrival really plays a huge factor because we see in the 19th century all of this imperial conquest happens that the british are venturing into africa the french are venturing into africa other european countries are but italy really only makes one attempt to venture into africa in the 19th century and that is with abyssinia in which they are rolled back and it is a total failure so I think that in the 20th century, this is where we see a tension between how empire worked in the 19th century and how now it's supposed to work in the 20th century. So whereas in the 19th century, imperial conquest 
was totally okay by the international community standards, the First World War has caused the international community to reevaluate what it thinks is okay for empires to do. And public opinion really starts to see wholesale killings of people in Africa as something that we shouldn't do anymore. But Italy is still abiding by these 19th century standards and are trying to, to expand its empire using these practices. And uh, I think that that's one of the things that we point to as a huge difference between fascist imperialism and liberal imperialism in the 20th century. But then if we put this in a broader context, we can see that these practices are actually things that the Italians are building upon that the British did only a century earlier and actually continue to do in the 20th century. It just doesn't get the same amount of international attention or scrutiny as it does when the Italians do it. Pretty cool. Um, I was really curious, Jesse, I was thinking uh, have you have you been following the American politics? I mean, I know you've <laughs> I know you've worked a lot uh, in studying fascist imperialism, authoritarianism, and the conflicts between democracies. What are your view views um, if you would like to share on the current state of America and the kind of difficulties we're facing in having this election as well? How do you view it as someone who's studied so much on these sort of issues? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> I will preface this by, by reminding the listeners that I am not a political scientist, so I, I'm not going to create my model and apply it to another context, but I do have some thoughts. Um, so one thing that really strikes me about American politics right now is how fascism happens. So in 1922, Mussolini rises to power essentially because Italy totally fails to demobilize after the First World War. So the First World War ends in 1918, but Italy is still a total mess. The economy is not doing well. There's been kind of like pockets of Marxist revolutions and some Italian groups are deciding that they themselves will go off and claim parts of the world for themselves, for Italy, for themselves. Um, and uh, this might seem quite different to what's going on in America right now, but I think that there are actually some similarities. And to to say there are similarities is certainly not to equate. I don't think that it's the same, um, but there are definitely some similarities to point to. So we haven't necessarily all been involved in a major war, but economies and societies are definitely mobilized to fight COVID-19. And I think that this whole movement, uh, the way that we have mobilized almost everything to stop the spread of COVID-19, it can be, uh, we can see some similarities with states of war and the limits that we give our governments to really intervene in the daily lives of populations. So like biopower has skyrocketed since we have declared a state of emergency and there are protests against 
racial injustice all over America. There are police disappa disappearing people, which I think we can see that that might even be going possibly further than before the rise of fascism in 1922. So I think there are definitely ways that there are some, some parallels between American politics and the rise of fascism. And I hope that we can all learn from the rise of fascism and not take this any further. I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah, it's, it's certainly packed with lots of information. Now, something as simple as a Trump tweet claiming that COVID-19 is a hoax or that mail-in ballots are going to ruin the election. Can we draw any comparison between that and Italian war propaganda in this time? Hmm. That's very interesting. I have not... Uh, focused on propaganda or really the, the cultural aspect as much. Um. I, I got to know that you were the chair of the Society of Graduate Students um, uh, Academic Committee. Could you, could you share with us what that committee was about and what was your role? And also what was the best things that you learned while being in that position? Yeah, for sure. Um, the academic committee, its main role is to plan the Western Research Forum that happens every spring on campus that unfortunately did not get to happen this year because of COVID-19. Uh, but that's one of the major projects that we really work towards. And uh, while I was chair, we, the committee was working to expand what its uh, its mandate and its events are. So we have started a, um, a seminar series. So before the Western Research Forum, which didn't happen, we started a poster workshop for uh, participants that are going to come and do a poster. We held a workshop for what the what posters should look like and how to prepare for that. And we also started a student supervisor relationship workshop series. So, and, and now I'm no longer chair, but the current chair and VP academic are working to expand the academic committee's mandate further. Um, I, yeah, it was really great to be involved with the academic committee. I learned a lot, not just about academia, but event planning and all of the things that go into trying to coordinate more than 100 graduate students on campus on the same day and feed them. Feeding them is a challenge. Well, <laughs> um, thank you so much for the remarkable work you've done for, for us and our community. I think we all are very grateful for that. So thank you. Of course. We are certainly in your debts. Now, Jesse, you are going to UFT. What is the next little while going to look like for you? And how is COVID going to hamper or inhibit your ability to perform research? Oh, the sad question. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm going to UFT in the fall to do a master's in 
European and Russian affairs. That is not the sad part. The sad part is wondering when we will be able to go overseas and even in Canada visit archives again. So I'm trying to keep an open mind and adjust my research goals and the sources that I use accordingly uh, and be hopeful that archives will open and not too soon, but they will open under safe circumstances and the world will handle COVID-19 in a wise way. Yeah, we, we, we certainly hope that um, for, for the foreseeable future, we can return to some sense of normalcy. Now we're almost out of time. If I had to give you a 30 second window to say something interesting to the audience about your research, what would you say to them? I think one of my most important takeaways is to recognize how empires really work and how they shape our daily lives. And one of the big things that I've been concerned with is this idea that fascist imperialism was totally terrible, which it was, and British imperialism was somehow a opposite humane form of imperialism. And I think that that's a myth that we know is false, but for some reason continues to guide how we view the world. And if we think about really the consequences of imperialism, fascist imperialism, the Holocaust, they have long lasting consequences and we know that, but we tend to ignore or try to brush past these long lasting consequences that in British liberal imperialism continues to have, especially in Canada. Like look at all of the protests that, that are protesting land claims that the government just refuses to recognize. This is a long lasting consequence of liberal imperialism. And I think recognizing the continuities between something so horrible and something equally bad um, that we have somehow created binaries between is really important moving forward. Absolutely. All right. So we're about to be at the end of the show. Thank you so much for be coming to our show. And I mean, I wish we could have more episodes as well <laughs> uh, because there's, we could probably have a whole episode on some of the topics you've mentioned. But anyway, Jesse, uh, good luck with the with your new adventure in Toronto. And uh, so, uh, this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Yusuf, and my co-host was Liam Clifford. We've been speaking with Jesse Gil Gilchrist, and this um, episode was produced by me as well. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at Western Radio 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night. Take care, folks. <laughs>